Welcome to episode 21 of the Equestrian Author Spotlight. I'm your host, Carly Cade. Today, I'm speaking with fellow equine author, Natalie Keller Reinhardt. Natalie has been riding and working with horses since the age of 10 and has worked in upper level eventing, dressage, racing, and mounted patrol. She started publishing in 2011 following the launch of a very successful blog, Retired Racehorse. Since then, she has written and published more than a dozen novels written about the equestrian experience. She has been a semifinalist twice for the Dr. Tony Ryan Book Award, a literary award for horse racing literature, and was a top finalist with her novel about racehorse retirement, Turning for Home. Natalie's latest book is The Hidden Horses of New York, which is set in the racing and urban equine communities of New York City. Now let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast a podcast featuring interviews with equestrian authors who love all things horses and writing about them. In each episode, you'll hear inspirational stories from horse book authors, including writing advice and marketing tips to help you write your very own horse book. If you're an author, aspire to be an author, or simply love horse books, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Carly Cade, and creative writing makes my spurs jingle. Hi, everyone. So excited to have Natalie Keller Reinhardt on the show with me today. Hi, Natalie. Hello. How are you? I'm great. I'm so excited to have you on. I've followed your author journey for so long, and, and you're actually one of the awesome authors out there making breakthroughs for the equestrian fiction folks, and uh, I've always looked up to you, so I'm so excited to meet you, you know, kind of in person for the first time. <laughs> And uh, you know, really have a conversation about all the success you've had around your books and your newest book. Um, so I thought a really fun way to jump into the interview would just be to ask you, how did your love affair with horses begin? Tell us about, about your horse-loving adventure. You know, um, that's something I try to figure out every time I write a book. Where did this come from? <laughs> Why am I like this? Um, I have always just, it's always just been horses. And um, as early as I can recall, I was thinking about horses and drawing horses and shouting horse as we drove down the road and conning people that I thought might have access to horses into letting me somehow near their property. Um, so the whole, you know, why horses or how did you get started with horses thing, it was just very inevitable. It was just a question of, of how it was going to take place and when it was going to take place. Um, and I was really fortunate that I started taking riding lessons when I was 10 and you know just happened to start at a very lovely sort of hunter jumper barn and my life just progressed from there it was just adding more and more horses into my life at that point sort of exponential horses <laughs> and, and I, I think that's a case with a lot of us horse loving ladies we're sort of born with it we don't know where it comes from it's just yeah. you know horses are just our passion it's something that we want to be near and talk about and draw and write about and uh and follow and and be a part of so you said adding horses exponentially. Tell us, can you tell us a little bit about your, 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 the horses in your life right now? Uh, right now, there's, there's one, and he's probably the smallest horse I've ever been involved with. Um, I've spent most of my career with thoroughbreds. I've spent some of my career with Percherons and Clydesdales, um, and now I'm riding a large pony, and I absolutely love it. It's so great. I, I had been away from riding for a while, and I was 
what my English friends called a little bit windy, wasn't necessarily up for getting on something that I thought was going to get me off. And I, uh, I fell into this opportunity to ride this really young horse and he was super quiet and he's only like 14 hands. So if he did something stupid, the ground was really close <laughs> and, uh, and it sort of worked out. I've, I've been riding him for two years and, um, just trying to make him into a really nice horse. Um, for his owner, for riding lessons, that kind of thing, because he's a pony. So, you know, a pony that has a great background. Oh, that's awesome. It's a pony, you know, with a job for life. So <laughs> I love him. Uh, <laughs> and that's it. I don't own anybody right now. At my peak, I owned 12 horses. Um, but that might not have been my emotional peak, owning 12 horses. So <laughs> that's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. 12 horses I, and a lot, of, a lot of moolah. I mean, you know, having that many mm -hmm. horses. Yeah, I've defined horse poor in my life for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think we all we all know what that feels like. But with twelve, I can only imagine it's 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 bigger, much bigger. It, yeah, it's best not to imagine it at all. Just put it out of your mind. <laughs> and then, and then, so twelve horses. Did you keep those at home? Uh, I would hope, or were you boarding? I did. Okay. Yeah, I had them at home. I was breeding, so I had horses of riding age. I had yearlings. I had weanlings. I had mares um so yeah they did they multiplied literally because i multiplied them um <laughs> and it was it was it was really great for its time i worked in thoroughbred breeding and racing for a while in ocala and um, tried to replicate what i'd learned on a much smaller scale outside of ocala and you know unfortunately financial collapse just wasn't great for the industry um so i moved on from that and that was what made me um helped me work on my first book and helped me move to New York and start having a whole lot of other experiences that have led me to where I am today. So I don't regret any of them. Yeah, well, and that's the cool thing about past experiences as authors. That's what we draw from, and that's where a lot of our knowledge comes from, and it inspires these mm -hmm. creative adventures that we end up taking on, which is, you know, a perfect segue into, you know, how did you get started? I mean, you mentioned a little how you got started writing horse books, but why horse books? What excites you about horse books? Like, let's start there. So I always knew I wanted to be an author. I've found things I wrote when I was in like elementary school, you know, sort of working out my authorship career. So it was always kind of a foregone conclusion. Um, I was writing a blog in 2009, eight or so people might remember, it's called Retired Racehorse. Mm -hmm. um, and it had massive following for a while. And it was around that time that I started reaching out um, and writing more fiction and actually trying to finish things instead of just starting stories and abandoning along the way, which I'd done for years and years. So I started writing this novel. Um, I continued with it after uh, I'd left uh, Florida and gone to New York. And I finished it while I was in living in New York. And um, it was very much a horse story. And it wasn't a horse story that I could hand to anybody who'd never been around a horse. They would have to really know what it was about. And so I had a decision to make. I could either, um, you know, start doing rewrites, start getting people to look at it, edit the heck out of it, uh, and turn it into something that anybody could read. Or I could take this really raw piece of work um, and just see who else felt like that. Mm. And I went with the second decision. Um, so I published The Head and Not the Heart in 2011. And it was, it was it's a really raw, emotional piece of work that I wrote specifically to see if other horse people had ever had these feelings. 
and it took a while. It took longer than a traditionally published book would have gotten to, to take off, but then it did take off. It had been around well over six months before mm. it gained traction and people started talking about it and reading it and asking me about it, but then it did. Um, and that was, you know, I don't remember the timeline of when I started writing which book, but that was at a point in my life where I said, right, people want to read these things and nobody's writing it for them. Mm-hmm. And this was at a period of time where if you wanted to read about a horse book, I hope you like murders because <laughs> equestrian murder fiction, now that's always been a thing. Um, but I don't, I don't like reading about murders. I just don't even want to think about murders. Um, I wanted to read like literary fiction or um, contemporary fiction that was just about the equestrian life. And it was really became a question of, I'm going to write what I want to read. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where we are. And you look how many it. people write it now. It's fantastic. I know it is amazing. <laughs> and we're going to get into that a little bit as we, as we move on, because I really want to get your perspective on this, because you were one of the very first authors that I, I, I noticed, you know, as just a reader that was mm-hmm. actually writing for equestrians, which, it, which we needed more content for equestrians because there was, like you said, the murder mysteries, or you could go back in time and go to, you know, like the old classics like Walter Farley, um, you know, or, or books for, for young people, but there, were, there weren't a lot mm-hmm. of uh, material for, for adults or people that are actually competitive in, in the sport. So, so mm-hmm. you, huge breakthrough going on around this right now, which is really exciting. So you have published a lot of horse books, including standalones, and you have four different st- series. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping you have your books there, a couple of your books there with you so you can hold up um, the, the covers so people can see who are watching us on YouTube. But can you, can you talk to us a little bit about your books for horse lovers? Uh, tell us a little bit about your series and your standalones. And then I, I want to get into your your newest release, which, which just came out. So I'd like, I'd like to you know, give, give listeners a little bit of background on, on all, of, all of your books. Yeah. Um, so I started out writing about horse racing. That was the industry I was in at the time. I was um, galloping at Aqueduct for some lovely trainers um, and living, like I said, I was living in New York City at the time. And so I wrote a couple of books that became what we call the Alex and Alexander series, um, Other People's Horses, uh, Turning for Home are in that series. They're about the life cycle of racehorses, but also they're about, you know, one particular young woman trying to operate in this really crazy male dominated, do they love horses? Do they not love horses kind of world? Like the line between love and money in horse racing can be really hard to keep track of sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, So I tried to explore that really deeply in in my racing novels, Um, but I also have a huge background in eventing. Um, I used to be a groom for Ralph Hill, who's a big international three-day eventer. I ventured through prelim myself. I love the sport. So uh, I wrote the eventing series, which starts with uh, the book Ambition. Mm -hmm. And Ambition was meant to be a standalone because I wanted a little break. I think after I wrote Other People's Horses, which is uh, one of the racing novels. So I wrote this book Ambition about this horrendously unlikable character, sort of anti-heroine. I was fascinated with the concept because I always kind of liked villains. And um, I thought, well, people are going to hate this book. This is a dangerous thing for me to publish. Um, and so, but I published it and hit the button and it, it floated along and it did okay and nobody hated it and that was cool. And then it got really massively popular. And I found out that teenagers were reading it 
they were buying it and passing it around at the barn. It had become like this underground teenage horse girl thing. Um, and I still catch sight of it in weird places. I've seen it in Horse Illustrated. Like nobody, nobody said anything to me. It just popped up on a like <laughs> most read list or something. Um, and that book became a six, are we six? Five, five part series. Um, because people kept asking for more of them, just getting emails and messages and tweets and just every sort of format. Thank God nobody showed up at my door <laughs> wanting to know when I was going to write more. And so I have continued, you know, I put out the most recent one earlier this year mm -hmm. um, and I'm still getting requests for six book, which is where that faux pas came from. Uh, and what else is there? There are the Showbarn Blues mm -hmm. series, which has been just a pleasure to write. Um, that's about an older established horse trainer trying to make her way in with all the changes in the world. Um, and I like to play really hard with where I live right now, which is Orlando. Um, I'm in the theme park industry. I'm surrounded by theme parks and horses are part of that. And so it's been really interesting to integrate that into the writing. And what else is there? There's heroines on horseback, right? Which are the romances. Mm -hmm. I don't talk a lot about them because they're just an ebook series and they were honestly just a project for me to see if I liked writing romances. I wrote at least one of them on the notes app of my iPhone while commuting to work in Central Park. That's good use um, of your time. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of a dare to myself. I said, you know, I think I could write a novel on my phone. Like this train trip is too long. So I did. Um, I'm proud of them, but I don't, I didn't particularly love writing romances, so I decided not to stick with it. Um, that's interesting though, to try, <laughs> to try out, you know, cross genre. I mean, because, because that's something very interesting too, because there's horse lovers and equestrians that want to read romance. They are, mm -hmm. There's ones that want to read suspense. There's, you know, so, so there, there's a space for all of us writing about horses and, and readers do sometimes go back and forth just like the authors do. So, mm -hmm. and what a, you, and I wanted to ask you, you know, you talked about how ambition started this, this huge uh, momentum and people were wanting more books and like that had to feel so rewarding for you as, as an author, like, and, and you have this huge cult following because of those books. Mm -hmm. How was that for you when you were like, oh, I wrote this book and you expected it to just be one and it became this, this big series? Like, how was that experience for you? It happens over such a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And um, you're isolated in between each one mm -hmm. that it really lends a, a lack of reality to everything. It's like imposter syndrome which is not feeling good enough to do what you're doing, even though you're doing it quite well. Mm -hmm. It's like that, but it's a little different, I think, for us as novelists, um, because we just, we go so long between releases. Mm -hmm. And so we work in silence for six, eight, nine months. And then we say, surprise, we've got a book. And people talk about it for a month. Mm -hmm. And then we go back into the silence. <laughs> The writing and that someone sends an email and you go, oh, that's right. <laughs> you know, because you're, you're already moving on to this, the, the you know, what, whatever's next for you, right? And whatever right. Like, it's like you've quit a job and, and you've gone and gotten a new job and you're still not sure if anybody wants to eat lunch with you at your new job. <laughs> and then you get like a card from somebody and you're like, oh, I'm such good friends at the old place. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, that is so true from an author's perspective, right? So we, you know, we go into our 
introvert mode and we sit down behind our computer and we, you know, live with our minds and, and our stories and our characters and we work on these books and then poof, one day we release one. And then, you know, I, I'm sure this happens to you all the time. Like people are like, they read it in a day and then they reach out and they're like, Oh, when's the next one? You know? And, and that is so cool. Like having someone want to read and finish your book in a day is awesome. I'm a binge reader. I do that too. <laughs> but then, but then when I finish someone's book in a day, I sit and I go, okay, how many months or years did it take this person to create this thing of beauty that I just tore through, you know, yeah. and, and want now want more. Right. So I'm sure you yeah. have that experience. <laughs> yeah. I've asked people, they come up to me and, and say, Oh, I, I stayed up all night. I read your new book. I said, could you do me a favor? Don't tell me that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a labor of love though. And, and you know, so once, once we finish our, our hard work, then we turn it over and the, and the reader can devour it. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and you do have a, an anthology, anthology that you worked with on some other equestrian authors, which I want to talk about in a second, because I think that's an interesting project. Um, but first, I want to hear more or all about your new release. Tell us about The Hidden Horses of New York, which just recently came out, just what, a week ago, week or two ago? In the past two weeks, yeah. Um, <laughs> the Hidden Horses of New York. Um, a bit of a dream book for me. I wanted to write sort of a crossover novel. I love stories about New York. I love stories about young women finding themselves. I feel like that particular genre, young woman finding herself in New York, does not get old for me. I did it myself. Mm -hmm. um, and I was really inspired by a lot of the young people I see working um, in the equestrian media. People like, say, Penelope Miller and some others who they put together uh, America's Best Racing. They put together these events uh, like EquestriCon. They're, they're trying different tactics to build up equestrian racing, equestrian sport. Um, and so I, I was going down that path, sort of trying to figure out how I can make this vision of this book come true. And it took a really long time. And I finally came up with a concept which I really fell in love with about um, a young woman uh, who wants to be a journalist. She's very idealist. You know how when people go to journalism school, myself included, they want to change the world, which is not what you're supposed to do as a journalist. You're supposed to report on the world, but <laughs> no one knows that in their 20s. Um, so you have a journalist like that. She's got a, she's uh, coming from a horse farm um, to New York to be a turf rider. And, uh, you know, she's got her family of friends. She's got that, that one boy she's always been in love with. And then all of that against not just New York as we're used to seeing it, but um, the carriage horses of New York, mm -hmm. the urban cowboys, the um, patrol horses in Central Park, uh, and then even a trip to Saratoga because no year in New York is complete without spending some of your summer in Saratoga drinking too much and <laughs> <laughs> partying too hard with the rich people. Um, so I did, I think put all of that together. I have her here, The Hidden Horses of New York. Let's see if yes, I can Yes, show, yeah, show it to us. Too difficult. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Yes. I, love, I love the cover. And <laughs> I, don't know if you, I don't know if you know this about me, but I, am at, I actually lived in New York too. So this book mm -hmm. is, and what you described is exactly up my, up my alley. I lived on the Upper East Side, um, 80, 89th and 2nd. How about you? Where were you in New York? So I started out 69th in Central Park West. Okay. And then, um, that's where my son was born, actually. And then I ended up in uh, South Park Slope. 
Oh, that's lovely there. I had friends there. Absolutely fantastic. Yep. And then I ended up at the end down in Bay Ridge, just sort of following the the sinking rents as far south as I could. I was at the very end of the R train and there was nowhere else to go. (laughs) (laughs) I hear that experience. So this book, uh, The Hidden Horses of New York, sounds fantastic. I can't wait to, to dive into that one and read it myself. But, it, but, you, but you can actually write from the authentic experience from a, for, of a woman in New York City because you live there. You had boots on the ground. And I think um, sometimes it's easier to write what we know, right? Would you agree? And Yeah, I think for some people, um, for some people like myself, I think it's a bit of a requirement. I would describe my writing style as a reporting style. Mm -hmm. I want to showcase everything that I see around me and I like to be extremely detailed and and I like to be extremely accurate. Mm -hmm. Um, So the places that I write about, Ocala, Saratoga, New York, um, I'm setting my new one that I'm working on over on Florida's Space Coast. I know these places really intimately and every like sort of if it's a stable or if it's an office or if it's an apartment, I've got a model somewhere in my mind that I'm working with. And I think that really shows in your, in your writing, like you, you can tell, you know what you're talking about um, in Showbarn Blues when she rides out um, in the back behind the barn and you describe like the, the brush and the, mm-hmm. the, the plant life and the native plants and things like that. I was like, you know, I don't, wow, that's cool. You know, and then I would go look up the plant because I'm like I don't know what that is but but it's so authentic and real you know so like you clearly know what you're talking about and I think that that's so cool about your writing so um you know it is said that all stories are partly personal even you know if they're fiction is there a personal I mean you talked about um you're really inspired by um women finding their way particularly in New York and involving like horses and into that picture is there a, a personal connection in in this one for you, The Hidden Horses of New York, is there, you know, what, like what, you said you were thinking on the story a long time and you really wanted it to be told and you brought it together. Like, what, what, what inspired that? So the funny thing I'd say about this first is that this is the first book I've ever handed a copy of to my mother. Ah. I said, go ahead and read this one because I've gotten a lot of other stuff out. Mm-hmm. You know, and my mom would very wisely when I came out with my first book, she, she said, I want to put it on my shelf, but I don't want to read it. I said, that's probably a good idea. Um, but, <laughs> you know, a dozen books in, you know, you, you've probably wrestled with a lot of the really, really, really raw stuff. And now it's time to really just start digging deep. Mm-hmm. And hopefully before that, actually. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I feel like in a lot of ways, um, Jenny, my, my character in this book, um, in a lot of ways, I have more in common with her than in anybody else I've ever written. And in a lot of other ways, she is the most imaginary character I've ever written, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think every story is partly personal, but I do think everyone is its own ratio of personal to this is the person that I, I want to explore. These are the places. A lot of these experiences I've been saving up my mounted patrol experiences, things like that. This is the first time I've written about them. Um, I, was a, I was a park worker in the Parks Department's mounted patrol. I was based in Central Park. So, you know, I touched on some of those experiences. How cool. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh you know so and you know some of her experiences in different parts of the city those are all deeply personal to me mm-hmm. um i used to tell people if 
that Jules, who's my bad girl character and ambition, is all the worst bits of me that mm -hmm. I like. And then Alex, who's my racing character, is all the like good parts of me. <laughs> and I haven't quite blended them. Maybe and Grace, who is in Show Barn Blues, the older trainer, she's like who I'd like to be someday. Um, and maybe Jenny is just like a version of Natalie from 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. I don't know, but uh, there's, there's always going to be a big chunk of yourself in anything that you're writing. Right. Because you write <laughs> from, from what you know, in your own life experiences, but folks, these are fictional characters. So they are, <laughs> they are, they are bits of us or bits of our experiences, but they are not us. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's what genres are for. Yeah. So we have to remind people, we have to remind people of that sometimes, <laughs> you know, cause people read my book like friends and they'll be like, did you ever, I'm like, no, it's fiction. I made it up, you know, but there are bits of me there. So that's, yeah. And you get the questions about, am I in this book? Would I tell you? Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right, that's why we have the disclaimer in the front of the <laughs> Yeah. That is so funny. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so is there a message in the Hidden Horses of New York that you really want readers to walk away having felt or gotten? That's an interesting question. I haven't even considered that. Um, the Hidden Horses of New York, for me, is a character story. It's a story about Jenny. People say, what's this book about? I say, this is about Jenny. Hmm. Um, and I tend to think of most of my books that way. I'm, I'm very much about, I, I have characters and I say, what would happen if I had this character? And the difficult next question is always, well, what's going to happen to the character? Well, I don't know. I just really like her. <laughs> I want to do something with her. Um, in terms of a, in terms of a message, I mean, I guess they're going to have to figure that out for themselves. I don't have, <laughs> I don't have an agenda. Well, that's, a great, <laughs> I mean, that's a great place to leave it, you know, because some mm. people do write intentionally wanting to leave readers mm. with this feeling, you know, and, and I think that's so cool because this is about your character and her adventure and, and you're leaving it for the reader to discover whatever they discover. Cause I know every time I read something, I discover something that I hadn't known before or a different way of looking at things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and you do that with your writing. So I think that was a perfect answer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wanted to talk to you a little bit uh, too, because you do, you do have um, Deck the Stalls, which is a holiday equestrian anthology that you worked on with other authors. And mm -hmm. I think this, this is really interesting um, project. I, I'm curious if you'll tell us a little bit about about it to begin with, and then you know what was it like participating in you know I, I guess you can call it a, a box set or a, a grouping of stories with with other authors. You know how did you make that work, or whose idea was it? Like mm -hmm. was there agreement between the authors? You know how did you market it? I know that th the proceeds went to help um, off the track thoroughbreds. Is, is that yeah. Correct? They went to old friends. Mm -hmm. They still do go to old friends because I still get uh, a small annual revenue from it. And that all goes directly to old friends at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. um, I believe the person who conceptualized it was Jessica Burkhart, mm -hmm. my co-editor. And uh, she's author of Canterwood Crest, which is a massive, right, children's series. Um, and she's written, she's written like an adult romance called Wild Hearts. She's, she's pretty prolific. She has quite a few books. Um, I think it was her idea. We've, we had talked about collaborating on different items over the years. We used to be neighbors in New York. And um, 
this was the first one that came together. It was not as simple to put together as you might think. We did, we made a list of authors that we wanted to reach out to. Um, we reached out to them. We got back some negatives and some positives. Some people said they didn't have time. Some people said they did not enjoy writing short stories, which is understandable. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> we, uh, you know, sort of coaxed a few people <laughs> into, into doing it anyway. Um, and then we just, you know, did a simple contract with, with, with deadlines and an agreement that, uh, for, for rights and, um, and then we just waited on the deadlines and then folks, they sent in their, 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 uh, stories and Jessica and I split editing duties on them. I think a lot of them we both went over. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I formatted it into an ebook. Mm -hmm. So it was time consuming. The editing was particularly time consuming, but it had a really good first year. I think we have sent well over $1,500 to old friends through this revenue stream. Um, I haven't really pushed it in the past two years. I've just sort of left it online. The original concept was really just to leave it on at Christmas time and I just left it year round because I figured an anthology is gonna lead people to discover our other work no matter what. So it's a good ad for me. It's a good ad for Jess. It's a good ad for Maggie Dana, um, for everybody who was, who was involved. So mm -hmm. it just seemed like might as well leave it up for everybody. Um, and we have talked about doing more anthologies and we just haven't been able to get the time to put them together. But it is a fantastic thing to do um, if you have enough lead time. And I mean like seven to eight months lead time for everybody, at least. Because everybody's already got so much on their table already. Mm -hmm. That to say, oh, can you come up with a short story with, around this specific theme? Most of us can't bring that up overnight. That, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it's, it sounds like it was time consuming, but I'm also hearing that you would consider doing, doing something like this again, um, be, because it was, it was time consuming, but it was a great way to connect authors and, and you, you see it sort of, it's almost like sort of like a, a marketing tool, if you will, you know, oh, it's hundred percent a yeah. marketing tool. Yeah. I mean, you give money to charity and that's fantastic, but anytime you're doing an anthology, you have the double whammy of, um, introducing people to a whole bunch of different authors. It's like whenever record labels put out samplers. Oh, it's, the oh. same, it's the same concept. That's a perfect analogy. <laughs> okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I just wanted to ask you about that because I, I was curious about how that worked. And it sounded like you had have all the right pieces in place, a legal agreement between the authors and then assignments of who would be handling which pieces and, and you made sure all the, the authors writing were you know, in a, the equestrian fiction realm so they fit mm -hmm. the project. So um, thank you for, for kind of extrapolating on that a little bit, yeah. um, which, which actually leads me to the next question, which is, you know, what are your thoughts, um, having been one of the first people to kind of really step into the equestrian fiction realm and like put the words around this particular genre, um, do you think it is a, a genre that's changing over time? And, and who do you, I mean, obviously the readers are people that love horses, but you know, who who do you think the readers are and are there potential for, for stepping outside of that demographic? Yeah, well, as a, as a genre, I think equestrian fiction has become so diverse. First off, um, if you glance through some of the bestseller lists on Amazon, 
Um, you see things that are by different discipline for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also see, you know, well, this is very romantic. Well, this is a romantic thriller. Well, this is a mystery. Um, this is for young adults. This is for, I don't know, everyone. Uh, <laughs> this is general <laughs> fiction. Um, it's almost like you could have an equestrian bookstore and you would still be able to fill shelves with different departments, right? Um, that, that could be good for us, for sure. And I think that that will help people uh, who are looking, if somebody reads mysteries about cats, for example, the chances are decent that the algorithm could show them a mystery about a horse and they'd be interested in that. Mm-hmm. If somebody likes to read Southern romances, that might lead them onto the trail of a horse farm romance. Mm-hmm. I've definitely read some that overlap. And now uh, I haven't read her yet, but there's an Australian uh, horse racing author now that I'm really desperate to read because it's a whole different um, equestrian lifestyle in Australia with these huge um, thoroughbred farms. So that could lead, you know, from Australian fiction, which is a very interesting place in and of itself, mm-hmm. into equestrian fiction. Um, I have in the past been kind of unrelenting about uh, sort of explaining things to readers. I've relaxed that a little bit. Mm-hmm. I have heard from people that know absolutely nothing about horses that really love reading my books. So I, I can be a little kinder to them. I'm getting older. <laughs> I'm getting nicer. Uh, <laughs> and I, th- I think that we can all find a happy balance where we can appeal to our readers without explaining what a lunge line is every time, um, mm-hmm. but also making it really clear to people coming in for the first time what mm-hmm. we're doing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, because I, I think you probably share this uh, frustration reading a book that is not written by someone uh, that knows anything about horses and the, you know, the terminology is incorrect or even just watching a horse movie, mm-hmm. you know, the sounds they make or the clothes they wear, or the tech that they put on is not accurate. Right. So I so- won't even watch a horse movie. <laughs> <laughs> the, the last horse movie I watched was Secretariat mm-hmm. and I hated that movie to death. <laughs> I, I know it's like, it it is very frustrating as equestrian to watch to watch some of this stuff. So I think we need we need a movement around getting you know like a really good horse movie made for for us. Just like we're writing really good horse books that are correct, right? And I think is that how you would define equestrian fiction? Is it's equestrians writing fiction that gets the gets the facts right? Is is that what you would say? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and hardly anybody's bothered to do it before. Mm-hmm. Um, you, could, you can list off, for adults specifically, you can list off three or four really great books over the years. Julie Cooper did it in Riders. Mm-hmm. She wasn't afraid of anything when she wrote that book, which is fantastic. Um, we know Jane Smiley did it with mm-hmm. Horse Heaven. Like, mm-hmm. That is a blueprint, and anybody who is ever considering writing a horse book should read Horse Heaven maybe six or seven times, maybe eight for good luck. Um, to just know this is how you, this is how you present the facts, tell a magnificent story, have horses as characters, which does a tremendous job of having horses as characters. That book will forever be my number one Holy Grail book. Um, and then Sarah Groon did a couple of nice equestrian novels before she hit it big with water for elephants, right? She did. Um, yeah. They're a bit sad, 
but she still, she knew her stuff. Mm-hmm. She actually learned some things reading, reading those books. And, and, and that's what I hope I think we're doing for, you know, um, equestrians that are reading our books is they're, they're also learning things about horsemanship mm-hmm. as, as they read our books. And that's fascinating. So, so you were big kind of on the, you were always on the forefront of like this movement. And so can you just in your words, explain, um, what it's been like seeing kind of this stream of horse book authors uh, start to like really rise up because what that actually leads me to my next question, which is, you know, there is a teen and young adult equestrian nonfiction eBooks category on Amazon, but we still haven't gotten to the place where we have mm-hmm. the, the broad spot that we can all slot our books. So we have to kind of like try and figure out how to get there. Right. So talk a little bit about, you know, this explosion in this movement that you've seen from your perspective being one of the very first people doing this in an independent author kind of realm, yeah. right? Well, when I started, I, um, I figured out really quickly that the only place anybody was going to see the book was in the horse racing section, right? Mm-hmm. And um, the horse racing uh, category at the time on Amazon was books about wagering, um, Dick Francis and Beth Pedersen, who has been around forever mm-hmm. writing romances and sort of murdery romances. Um, so credit to her for figuring out first. She cracked the system first. I followed her lead. Uh, <laughs> so to do that, you had to classify your book as nonfiction, which is unfortunate, mm-hmm. but where we still are today. So now you can look at this section eight years on and you can see it is com- the bestseller lists are completely filled with fiction books, which I don't see anybody complaining about. Mm-hmm. Um, we, for me, I find it whenever I see a beautifully presented horse book, uh, equestrian novel, that is a great feeling because mm-hmm. that shows that we're growing as a genre. And eventually somebody's going to take us seriously and we're going to get a section <laughs> and we really just deserve our own bookshelf. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I have a theory that horse girls of the eighties are rising to power. Uh, and I, as a horse girl of the eighties, I am very excited about this. And this is based upon the new star Wars movie, which has apparently some sort of space horse in it. Huh? Um, the, oh, new Frozen movie, <laughs> the new Frozen movie, which has some sort of like seahorse, ice horse thing in it. I haven't seen it. And then, um, gosh, there was something else that had a horse in it. I don't remember. But anyway, um, my theory is that uh, as creatives, we are now reaching the point where we can put horses in everything. And we, the horse girls, shall inherit the earth. And we will have our own section on Amazon. So it is all a positive for me. The only thing I ask is that people just ask for advice um, on their covers, on their editing, et cetera, um, and don't cut any corners because we definitely want to present ourselves as these really professional, polished authors. You know, I totally agree with you. <laughs> uh, you know, it, and I mean, we could probably have an entire episode on just that for people that are interested in coming in, um, learning about the, uh, how to write a horse book or wanting to be a part of this community. And that, and that's sort of what I'm hoping to kind of do with this podcast is give, uh, our community and people either already writing in it or looking to come into it and write the next horse book resources, you know, and information and tools on how to do it the very best way. Because like, like you followed Bev Peterson, you know, I've kind of been following 
telling you and some of the other authors um, that you're connected with uh, in your journey. And you know, I mean, mistakes in the beginning, and and I got better by working with fellow authors and and them giving me advice and resources mm -hmm. and paying attention. And and so I think that's a really cool thing that you just said because we are available and we do want to help and we want to make equestrian fiction as good and awesome as it possibly can because mm -hmm. then maybe we'll actually have some good horse movies down the line right that <laughs> <laughs> all comes full circle hopefully yeah hopefully it's like we get the ball rolling here mm -hmm. um you know and and so like so we were just talking about the categories on amazon ultimately the goal would be to have an equestrian fiction category for our books because you know sometimes like you said slipping it into a nonfiction category even though it's it's for horses or you know even even me like i think young adults could read my book but it it leans higher on the young adult scale and some yeah. and, and more more towards adults so i feel sometimes guilty actually being in that category because i don't know if it's like the right assessment um so somehow we're gonna to have to figure out a way to make that happen but but for now you're consistent you're consistently you consistently get all of your books into the teen and young adult equestrian not no equestrian fiction they have one ebooks how how do you set your books up for success to appear there is is there a trick is there something easy to do um where's it luck we there's a trick and i'm trying to remember exactly which trick it is because and let me rephrase. We think it's a trick. Mm. So some years ago, I was talking with somebody else. It might have been um, uh, Mara Debricius, who writes a fantastic horse book herself. Um, and hers were in that category. And I think I was trying to get the eventing series to show up in there because I'd found out teens were reading it like crazy. And um, we landed on keywords. When you publish your book, you can enter keywords, right? Like seven into mm -hmm. Kindle Direct. And uh, young adult, I added young adult as a keyword. It might be young adult equestrian fiction as a keyword, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so try that, young adult. Uh, and then I always set my ages from like ninth grade to 12th grade just in case um just in case that applies somewhere along the line you know where it can it can it can ask you if it's suitable for children and so i always set it for like high school or 13 and up or something like that i mean for me my books um really don't have any sex in them they just have this whenever parents come up to me or they send me an email they say, can i can i buy this for my my 12 year old yeah. <laughs> i say well that depends on you like I would let a 12 year old read it. I say, my books do not have sex. They do have swears. Mm. And then if they feel a bit shaky about the swears, I think, well, you don't know what your 12 year old talks like when you're not around. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I so say, true. okay, that's fine. Um, Cause yeah, they deal with big adult relationships, mm -hmm. um, but okay. Kids read what they want. They skip what they want, you know? Um, and I learned my first swear word from uh, James Harriet and, I'm not ashamed. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, um, Judy Blooms Forever. Did you ever read that book? Weirdly, no, I haven't. I know that's so surreal. It's oh. just like never been in front of me. I've read everything else she's written and also her most recent adult novel, but not 
that I don't yeah. know. Yeah, so I will tell you, <laughs> I if you know anything about this book, uh, as a as a small human, my mom would <laughs> let me go to the bookstore and pick out my own books. And you know, Judy Judy Bloom was like, you know, all the all the little girls were reading Judy Bloom, but this particular book forever. Whoa, like I got a lot of education out of for that one. That was unexpected. My mom, you know, looked at the author and she's like, okay, you know, mm -hmm. but the content was um, different than the typical ones. I'll just, I'll just put it out there. So I'm going to buy it like tonight. I just, there was a Twitter thread about it literally like yesterday. Oh, are you kidding? That's where so people weird. hid their copies. <laughs> yeah. No, it felt I was so like, out. if my mom knows I'm reading this, she's going <laughs> to go through this, the roof. And I, it was, it was right there in the shelf mm -hmm. of the other Judy Bloom books. So you, uh, you'll get a trip out of it if you, if you read it. Yeah, check it out. It's um, <laughs> like, whoa, imagine like, uh, you know, I, I don't know, I must have been like 10 reading that book. So it was like, what, way eye-opening. <laughs> Side tangent, but that's what this is all about. You know, this yeah. is an authentic conversation, um, which is so funny. So, and I wanted to, to ask you too, I mean, it, it, you have so much knowledge and, you know, I had so much fun. Um, I've, you know, I've been following you forever and, and checking out what you've been doing for a long time, but like I had fun um, galloping around your different sites, gathering information for, for the questions I sent over to you. Um, but I think people would be really interested to, to know, you know, which do you prefer, self-publishing or, or independent publishing or traditional publishing? Like which route did you go and, and, and why? Yeah. So I've always been self-published, um, you know, starting with the story about how I wrote the head and not the heart and decided mm -hmm. that the book needed to be read as it was written and not as it would be edited. Mm -hmm. I don't have a problem with editing a book to be the very best thing it can be. I just don't think that's right for every single book. Um, and I don't think every book has to be right for every single reader. And maybe the head and not the heart wouldn't have been right for anybody but me. And that would have been okay too. because You can mm -hmm. return books. It's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, so self-publishing gives you that opportunity. If there is something that you absolutely just want to put out and see how people are going to react to it, you have that opportunity. Traditional publishing has so many hoops to jump through that sometimes just reading about it tires me out. Mm -hmm. I believe it has value. 99% of the books that I read come from the library, so you know what? are traditionally published um, and they are edited and they are made into the best that they can be yeah um, I would be myself I would be happiest as a hybrid publisher mm. because I have general fiction aspirations which would be very hard to serve with the niche market that serves equestrian fiction so well mm -hmm. if I were to write a book which had no horses in it and which is not gonna happen. But, <laughs> but it might have one horse in it. But <laughs> galloping through I, the scene. Galloping through the yeah, scene, right? You can always Yeah, it's like a cameo way. horse, but we need <laughs> yeah. at least yeah, at least that. Um it, I'd be hard pressed to market that on Amazon all by myself without spending mm -hmm. a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Because for one thing, my backlist is all equestrian. Um and people buy by seeing, oh, she's got 15 books. Holy cow, this girl's got a problem. <laughs> um <laughs> but the the distribution channels that open up to you with a traditional publisher, these things can expand your audience in ways that might be really expensive for you to try to expand on your own. Mm -hmm. And so I think that both models can work together really well. If I were to publish a general fiction title with a press, then I have the opportunity to say also by Natalie Keller Reiner, 
and provide them with all of the other books that they're not gonna see at their library or on the shelf somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so for, yeah, I, d- I definitely think a hybrid is the way to go, if at all possible. I'm not a hybrid yet, I'm, I'm solely self-published, but that, that's on my list of things that I'd like to accomplish. And I could totally see that being the future, actually, um, for, for us. It, you know, we develop our following, we develop our catalog, we develop our, our skills, and then we bring, you know, we bring a brand and an audience. It's, it's much like, I used to work in the music industry. It's much like indie uh, music artists. Like, mm-hmm. they're, they're, you know, they're, the scouts will be there, but then, you know, they eventually start looking like, what do they already have plugged in that they can bring to us, right? So. So there's benefit from both sides. Like the traditional publisher has the bigger distribution arm and they can broaden what you've already created, right? But you're mm-hmm. coming to them with an audience. So I think, I think that that's kind of where we're heading, where there will be a lot more hybrid opportunities. Um, the, the one thing that still is there for me is, you know, it's like what I like about being an independent author is that I retain my intellectual property on all realms and mm-hmm. I don't sign any of my rights away, which I, you know, hear the horror stories of authors that have gone because it was like the pinnacle, right. To get signed by a traditional publisher, but then they go and they sign away their overseas rights. They sign away, you know, the rights to TV show, you know, movies, mm-hmm. audio books, uh, you know, even, even before it was a huge thing, the Kindle, like they were signing away their, their digital rights and they didn't mm-hmm. even know it. So what would you say to that? Like, what are, what are your thoughts on, you know, how the hybrid model can work where the authors actually make more money and retain their rights? I think for a lot of people who are successful self-publishers, they should be prepared. And this is just me spitballing my own personal ideas because mm-hmm. I haven't done it. Um, I have, I do have a publishing deal for four audiobooks with my eventing series. So I did, and that was solely because I said, I don't have the technical wherewithal or time to create audiobooks of these. So here, have the rights. Mm-hmm. To give away a chunk like that without thinking too much about it. There are, like I said, I wasn't gonna make the audiobook. Somebody needed to do it. Um, but I think that a successful self-publisher might have to be prepared to lose money on a traditional publishing deal. Mm-hmm. Because they are there for one thing your royalty rate is going to drop significantly from what you get paid directly from amazon um and because you are going you're going to lose control over things like kindle unlimited or um your book cover art your book cover yeah like a million things you're going to hand off a lot and you and you're probably going to lose some potential income along the way from that book Mm -hmm. right the goal being to drive business to all your other books and to expand your, your future presence on both mm-hmm. sides. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I definitely think that there's a potential there to regard a book as a little bit of a sacrifice. Say, if I published this, let's say that my next horse book, I sold to somebody. Like Penguin or Random yeah, House. <laughs> maybe not, but, <laughs> but maybe I did. And maybe they were going to, you know, they're going to pay me a couple cents per copy after they pay back my advance. Is that going to happen? Who knows? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Cause I don't have control of it anymore. Mm-hmm. If the cover's not working or the cover doesn't mesh with anything else that I have in my library, and it doesn't even look like my book anymore. 
that doesn't have a horse prominently displayed is it mm-hmm. going to sell mm-hmm. to my backlist? It's hard to say. I might have be. I might be going after an entirely new audience at that point. Like there, there. This is the single toughest question I think that, and it's a great question to have to to wrestle with, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whether or not you'd accept a publishing deal, but I do think it is a really tough question for those of us who are established, who have a backlist, mm-hmm. is how to draw lines in that contract and say, no, you can't have this. Right. This could be really important to me. You know? And it, it, that makes so much sense and, and great advice, right? I love that you're saying to be prepared, right? Be, be prepared, understand the legal ramifications of what it would be like, and, and then consider what are you willing to let go and then what is an absolute you know no way kind of deal breaker sort of thing and I, and I think that's where we're heading I think I think and I'm loving that we're having this conversation right now you know just be informed be educated do your research work with legal representation if you need to so know what you're getting yourself into if, if yeah. you do that route right yeah so, I think having someone look at a contract mm-hmm. is a must at the very least um especially if we're talking you're talking like full rights, physical, digital. Yeah. Yeah. Have two two lawyers look at that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and they put it all in there, right? But we're Mm -hmm. just talking about a manuscript to a book. Like how does that all of a sudden include audio, movie, TV deals, you know, all that Mm -hmm. stuff. Right. But it, but it does. And like, I I don't think a lot of people get so excited to sign on with a traditional publisher. They forget or don't know that that is happening in the background or could be happening in the background. And and both are good. I'm not poo-pooing traditional publishing. I'm just all for intellectual property is the future of making money as a creative and you have Mm -hmm. to protect, you have to protect that. Right. Absolutely. Uh, Fascinating conversation. (laughs) (laughs) We kind of went down a rabbit hole, but that that was really cool. Um, You know, and just going, circling back to being an independent author one more, one more time. Is there any myth that you'd like to debunk about indie authors? What, What would you say about that? Um, maybe it's like the whole myth of of working for yourself uh I've you know I've worked for myself for a really long time and I've gone into offices for a while and come back out again and of all the things I've ever done writing is the most lonely thing I've ever done um again going back to what we talked about before with in between our release dates you know mm-hmm. we, we go almost into radio silence sometimes where mm-hmm. we have nothing new to to talk about um I mean, that's why things like having a podcast are a great idea because <laughs> you have something to talk about. Um, and uh, and I, the, the alone in your head part mm-hmm. can be big, mm-hmm. can be really big. And you have to make physical time for yourself, like to go out and work out and be outdoors. You know, when I didn't have a horse um, to make sure I was going out running and taking in nature and just being away from the computer and being listening to podcasts to like get out of my own brain Mm -hmm. those things are really really important because your brain can trick you into thinking that because you added to something but you didn't complete and submit something and you didn't talk to anybody you didn't do anything Mm -hmm. right absolutely you can work all day and have edited three chapters and feel like I did nothing with my day I haven't spoken a word I am a worthless human being and that's just like i live in a tiny apartment with my son and my husband. I'm never 
really alone because my husband works from home too. And I can still have these feelings that I accomplished nothing and I'm not a member of the human race and <laughs> shame on me. Um, so it's hard. Yeah. Right? It's hard. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 I totally hear you. And it, it, it makes a lot of sense. And, and I find, you know, uh, it recharges the battery when I force myself sometimes to get out of the house and even like go to the coffee shop and get a coffee or, mm. um, you know, I just got back from an event, like being at an event bring makes you, makes you feel human again. Right. Because I work from home too. So I know how that, that feeling of isolation can be, you know, and you know, your husband's there, my husband's here, but, uh, <laughs> they, they just like know you. So it's like, you're just, you know, working with the being that knows you the most. So like kind of getting out there and having to interact with people, like, makes you feel human again. I, I totally hear you. And Being at an event is the best medicine. I wish I could go to more because then people come up to you and they know what you do. And they want a picture and they want to hug you and they want to talk about your horse. Yeah. That's just like, that's the best that it can be. <laughs> and, and exactly. So let's, let's talk about the, you know, you, every year you go to, to Equine Affair and, mm -hmm. and you, um, you really support that event and you um, meet your readers and you take your books. You were just telling me earlier before we jumped to the interview, you have like two tablefuls of books now. <laughs> tell us a little bit about, about Equine Affair. I've not been there. I hear it's amazing. I've, I've not been to Equine Affair and I'd love to know more about it. And then um, talk, talk to us about like how you reach your readers when you're, when you're at an event like that. Well, I go to Equine Affair in particular for two reasons. Um, one is that I am always invited. Um, there's a bookstore called Taberton Equine Books and um, their owner has been a tremendous supporter of mine over the years. Uh, I was gratified to find I have my own page on her website. Lovely. Um, and so she first invited me years ago when I lived in New York and I rented a car and drove up and then um, after I moved to Florida I found it was still really easy for me to get there because for some reason flights from Orlando to Connecticut are really cheap in November. So, so it's easy access and, uh, and I'm always, I always know that I'm wanted and, um, people are starting to expect it. Are you going to be here next year? Okay. Um, and so people will come and they will, they'll wait all year to buy whatever's new. So if I have two books out one year, then what's new, what's new on the table and they'll snatch that. And I'll say, you know, you could have bought that at any point. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> well, they probably wanted to buy it from you, meet you, have you sign it, get the picture. They, these are these are your fans. They you do, know? and that's yeah. the crazy part, right? Because they only go to one a year generally, so it's always this huge welcome surprise that people have come and, and want to meet with me. Um, oh, so I am so hoping to do to do more of that. Equine Affair itself is it's kind of like it it appears to be, and I'm not from New England, so I'm not 100 percent sure, but it appears to be what everybody in New England who has a horse comes to buy everything. <laughs> they bring their shopping carts and they just, they buy saddles and they buy supplements and they buy t-shirts and they just, they buy literally everything that is not nailed down. Sounds like the perfect place to sell some horse books. <laughs> yeah. You'd think, you know, books and books are kind of a hard sell. Like you have generally somebody has to really want a book, right? Like, a person who might spend $25 on a shirt because they're going to wear the shirt twice mm -hmm. a week or twice a month or whatever. I'll give away my, how small my wardrobe is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is all I ever wear. <laughs> I mean, people criticize me for only wearing black shirts, but they don't know. I just have two black shirts. No, um, they, 
That's really smart to wear your name on your shirt all day long. <laughs> do that. Um, they, you know, they look at a book and, and they try to gauge the dollar value, not of the creation of the book, but of their time invested in the book. Interesting. So if somebody looks at a book and they say, I'm going to read that tonight while I'm waiting for my dinner to heat up. And then I'm going to read it tomorrow while, um, you know, I don't know, do whatever people do in the real world. <laughs> Are they going to get $17 of enjoyment out of that? Yes, I would argue, yes, loudly, you would, but you know, people are, they're wondering what their return is on a book. And sometimes, you know, it can be a little bit of a push. A lot of people take pictures of the books and say, I'm going to buy them online. Okay. That's fine oh, too. Interesting. Um, but yeah, books are as impulse buys. And I used to work in Barnes and Noble um, and saw the same thing there. Impulse buys and, and the concept of spending $15 on a title can be really hard for people that aren't like, I'm a book person and I buy books. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's like, it's a small cult of people that will always buy a book versus, well, I don't read a lot, but I do like books. Yes. <laughs> it is a very different buyer and you, you are, mm -hmm. you hit the nail on the head there. And then, you know, just for perhaps uh, your readers or, or fans of your books that, that are listening to this podcast, I mean, I, what I like about this is it kind of gets into the business of things in the background, but, but authors generally, they, they just make a few dollars off their books, even mm -hmm. if they're online for, for $20, even if we're independently published, the majority of the cost of the book goes into the production of the book. Right. So, so we only make a few dollars. So in order for an author to fund their business and their writing, you know, you may have to sell an awfully lot of books. <laughs> yeah. And at, a, and at a price point that can support a year's worth of work. Speaking of, this, this is so awesome and a great segue. Speaking mm -hmm. of like authors only making a few dollars from their books, you wrote a really cool blog post um, called Don't Hate the Side Hustle. Um, will you share your thoughts on like the gig economy and, and how, you're, how you're making it work for you to create uh, extra, you know, channels of revenue in addition to being an author and making money from 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 your books because clearly we're neither one of us are making a lot. So we have to have open up mm -hmm. these additional, you know, revenue streams. Can you talk right. a little bit about that with that blog post? Yeah. You know, I think obviously anybody's feelings about the gig economy are very complicated and they should be very complicated. Um, but all in all, I have made it work for me and I prefer the flexibility of picking up work or, um, or putting out something new or coming up with a new um, business concept much more than, yes, I owe you 40 to 50 to 60 hours of my time and I will be at my desk mm -hmm. and, you know, I will be back from lunch at one o'clock precisely. I, I worked um, like hourly for a long time. And when I did, there were opportunities for overtime. So you kind of had this sensation of, well, I can control how much money I'm going to make this week based on how much I'm willing to work. And then when you move to a salary, they always joke, oh, you've, you know, taken a pay cut because you're a manager now. And I kind of, I was, I don't remember exactly when it was in my life, but it was, I would have liked to have earned more money. It was really frustrating to me that I could spend more hours at work working harder and I would not bring home more money. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so when I turned back to freelancing, it was just like so pleasant to say, you know, I can determine how I'm going to spend my day. Mm -hmm. And when you freelance, whether you're driving an Uber or you're grocery shopping for somebody or you're feeding someone's rabbit, 
you are freeing up um, the time that you want to work on your own things. And I really believe everybody has something in them that somebody else will pay for. Mm -hmm. It doesn't even have to be something creative. It could be fixing someone's lawnmower. But I think everybody has got something valuable that they could that they could charge money for that doesn't fit into somebody else's day. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you do that on an app or if you do that by advertising on Facebook, whatever works for you. Um, I just, I just think that pursuing anything that allows you to be at least a little bit free of a nine to five is a good thing. I love that, that there is this new way of thinking and people are thinking differently about what it means to, make income. I think quality of life is more mm -hmm. important than having a lot of stuff, right? Would you Yeah, agree? I 100% did that this year, you know. Mm -hmm. I had I tried out, you know, um corporate Natalie and did a lot of corporate Natalie things, acquired a lot of black clothing that I still like. <laughs> and, um, and when and when I had the opportunity to change it up and say, "No, I'm just going to I'm going to work from home. I'm going to make my own way. I'm going to work you know, part-time, which is what I do to get out of the house a bit and talk to other people. Um, and yeah, I was a pay cut for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, and I provide my own insurance and it's not as good as what I used to have. And my glasses are really scratched and it's crazy annoying, but I'm having a lot more success personally. I'm having a lot more success mentally. And if I want to, you know, if I want to work all night and sleep all day, I can do that. And as a night owl, I appreciate that. And one more thing, there's a climate perspective to that as well, which is that I'm not getting in my car and driving somewhere to sit and do the work I could sit and do at home. Absolutely. And I believe that almost all office work should be done at home. Mm -hmm. I am firmly, we should end the commute, end people driving places, with, usually with the same laptop that they're going to open on their desk at their office. Absolutely. We have functions like you and me having this conversation. How many Zoom meetings I've been on? Yeah. It's like you're sitting, <laughs> but it's like you're sitting here right with me and we're having like yeah. a totally normal, awesome conversation that doesn't require me driving to exactly. where you are. I also wanted to, to talk to you a little bit about Patreon, um, which is a subscription platform for creative since we're talking about, you know, how do we create these additional streams of revenue? Um, how, how, how have you been using Patreon to grow your audience and, and help, fund, help fund your author work? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, Patreon, my concept there was uh, I might release two books a year. And so um, you get a big income bump for the first two months or so afterwards, and then you watch it go down. So your income throughout the year, if you're solely relying on novel releases, is two massive ski slopes down <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then like a sharp cliff face up and then massive ski slope down again. And I usually, you know, work my way through those, those deep canyons by, by freelancing more and freelancing takes mental energy and time. Um, and so I had some social media clients and some sort of content strategy clients that were taking a lot of time. And I decided to try to replace that by asking readers, hey, can you throw a couple bucks at me every month on Patreon mm -hmm. so that I can get the next book to you that much sooner? I, um, I believe in supporting art. 
I like I have a favorite band and they have an exorbitantly expensive to most people um, <clears throat> sort of fan club membership. And I cheerfully pay them for it every year because I know they're, they're hustling just as hard as I'm hustling. They're trying to get their records out just as hard as I'm trying to get my books out, living with peaks and valleys, living with Spotify and tour managers and, and you know, everything that goes into like the incredible overhead that goes into creation. It's absurd how much money we have to pay in order to create things. Um, that, I'd be good with paying them a monthly subscription if they offered it, honestly. Say, yes, you keep doing this. Don't do anything else. Make more records for me. Mm -hmm. And so I said, if people feel that way about me, if they say, don't do anything else, write me more books, then okay, I'm going to give them a channel and I'm going to give them some content to appreciate that. Mm -hmm. And my Patreon has been so good for me creatively. And I have so much appreciation for the comments that are left for me and the conversations that we have about like the chapters that I post. I chat, I post all my work in progress to Patreon. Oh, that's lovely. My first draft. And then I take feedback and I go off and I rewrite for a second mm -hmm. and it's worked out beautifully. And the, the piece that I'm working on now, I'm in a, I'm in a rewrite was completely inspired by conversations that we had about the heroines of books and, um, writing about professionals versus writing about amateurs, right? That came out of the Patreon conversations. Wow. So this is this incredible community um, that's also, you know, a sounding board for new ideas. Um, and they, you know, they're happy to throw me a buck or five bucks every month. And it all adds up and it helps me sort of keep the wolves at bay a little bit and take on fewer outside hustles <laughs> and 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 that's lovely and i'm and 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 what an amazing i mean because i th i think what people are looking for now is a closer connection to the creatives that they mm -hmm. love and 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 your supporters get that through there for the for the cost of a starbucks coffee right mm -hmm. or maybe even less you know they get to see first chapters they get to see your creative process and then mm -hmm. on on the flip side you get the benefit of like super beta readers, right? And like, you know, new ideas. And, and I think that's such an interesting space. And I think it's lovely that you're doing it. And um, I think the future of creativity and just humanity in general is connection. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that's what you're providing through your Patreon. What do you call it? Patreon page count? Uh, yeah, count Patreon. Yeah, they're called, you know, they Patreon calls the people who subscribe patrons. So they're mm -hmm. patrons of the arts. I'm like you, I love arts and I love books, but and I love music. I would gladly pay, you know, three bucks a month to like get a record faster or a book faster mm -hmm. for sure. And, and that's exactly. a really cool way to explain what that what that's for. So you know, like we have covered so many topics and, and I've so mm -hmm. enjoyed talking with you and we've really like kind of gotten to go down the rabbit holes, which is what I wanted to do on this, this um, podcast interview. So I have cut out a few of the questions I wanted to ask you because <laughs> I, I think I got going crazy when I was galloping around all of your different sites and learning about you because I was like so excited to talk to you. Um, just to be respectful of your time uh, and also listeners time, I wanted to, you know, kind of talk to you about, you know, you said you've already started working on your next writing project, you know, and you've, you've got some cool things in store for, for your readers coming up mm -hmm. here. So, you know, what's next for you? What are you curious about? Um, what, what, what are you up to right now? Well, in terms of writing, I am wrapping up 
like I said before, the second draft of this book, which is about an adult amateur. Mm-hmm. Um, and that came from a conversation on Patreon about writing books about professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, but the books are being written by, written, the books are being uh, read by amateurs, right? And a lot of us are rewriters. I'm a rewriter, right? Mm-hmm. I quit mm-hmm. writing for years and I came back to it in my 30s, nervous and with no muscle memory whatsoever and had to make that work. Mm-hmm. And so had this idea and that's really what this book is about. Um, and then for next year, I have some surprises coming. So I'm going to get too into that, but they do involve uh, some characters we're all familiar with, um, Alex, Jules, Grace. So the main characters from my three major, like sort of Florida horse series, um, I'm going to be working with them in 2020. Exciting. So you, that we get to do a little, you gave a little teaser there. Yeah, you know, it's, I, I try to keep something in edits and something new in writing all the time. And the, my writing piece right now is I've been working on a novel about the theme park lifestyle for two or three years now. And I'm still working on that, but I'm spending a little more time on it. Try to wrap that novel up, its first draft up, so that then I can really focus on this next equestrian project. Mm-hmm. While the amateur project is out with some different readers and getting some feedback on that. So a whole bunch happening, hopefully like January, February, March with those three titles <laughs> those three projects that's, that's <laughs> i so might funny. have to make a chart <laughs> <laughs> you like gotta map 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 the projects because they could they're all kind of coming together at the same time there is a lot yeah and then i'm working i'm sort of working around an idea to do with um how books fit into people's lives sort of like a holistic picture um, because I feel like books provide us with sort of an inspiration and a rejuvenation aspect. And mm-hmm. so um, in looking at the way people buy books, I'm wondering if there's better ways to sort of create whole packages. Oh, I love that. I think it's really cool that you're writing from the amateur perspective because uh, I think uh, there is a lot about the professional writer out there, but not so much ab- about the amateur. And, and I think that makes for a great reading. So I'm really excited to see where you go with that, that project as well. So Natalie, I, you know, thank you for the gift of your time. Thank you for all of this amazing information you've provided about your books, but also about, you know, being in the business of making money as an author and like what that looks like and, and different things people can try. And, and I really enjoyed your take on equestrian fiction and where, where our, our genre is going and where we're heading. I think, I think the future is bright. Um, so in the meantime, can you share with us where readers can find you and your books? Of course, I'll link to all those places in the show mm-hmm. notes as well, but let people know where they can find you. Um, so I have a website, nataliekreinert.com. Uh, and then that's also my Instagram handle. If you want to follow me on Instagram, it's Natalie K. Reiner. I post a lot of pictures of my dog and of my horse and also some clouds. So you have all of that to look forward to. (laughs) Um, I tweet almost nonstop. My Twitter handle is at Natalie Gallops as if I were galloping. And I am occasionally on Facebook and my Facebook is, uh, slash Natalie Keller Reinert, my whole name. And uh, because it is a pretty unique name, if you type that into Google, you will find my books wherever you like to buy books. They're all on, for the most part, on Kindle Unlimited, if you're a member of that. The Eventing series is also on audible.com if you enjoy audiobooks, and hopefully others will be in the future. So 
yeah, that's me. Mostly, mostly Instagram and Twitter. If you want to bother me there, I enjoy being bothered. <laughs> we love being bothered by our readers for sure. <laughs> love it. Like, yeah. please don't make me write. Tell me what's going on. Oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you again for being on the show and we will do a follow-up interview for sure in the future and have a beautiful rest of your day, Natalie. Thank you so much. Thank you. Such a pleasure. Thanks for joining us this week on the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I hope you enjoy these Q&A sessions with wonderful equine authors who love all things horses and writing, just like me. Visit my website, carlycadecreative.com, where you can read the show notes, and make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Want a free guide to secrets of horse book authors? Gallop over to carlycadecreative.com forward slash wisdom to have author advice delivered instantly to your inbox. If you are an author who writes about horses and would like to be spotlighted, please let me know. Visit my contact page at carlycadecreative.com to fill out a request. I'd be happy to have you on the show too. Thank you for tuning in to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. See you next time. I'm your host, Carly Cade. Creative writing makes my spurs jingle.